so uh, this is um, an English language session. And if anyone just wants to ask a question without writing it down, then um, feel free to do so. Uh, actually, the first is everyone ready? Uh, so the first question is, is written in Thai, but I'm going to give an, an answer in English. And uh, if, if any of my English explanations are, are not clear, or you don't quite understand, then um, we can, I can answer again in Thai in the afternoon, the afternoon session. So the, the, um, the question is, uh, เรามีคมิทิบายหรือหลักการใดไม่ที่จะเอ่อช่วยให้เขาเข้าใจมากขึ้นเรื่องของ okay, well, the, the um the law of karma um is uh, a natural and universal law and um, it um, it occurs in many uh, different um, dimensions, and, um, some of which uh, we can prove for ourselves, others uh, in which we can't um, very easily or can't at all. So, um, karma from past lives affecting our lives in the present um, is a topic that of interest to um, a lot of people, but it's not one that um, very many people can prove to their own, uh, through their own experience, um, because it depends upon the ability to recall past lives. Now that ability um, is, um, is attained, is realized um, through meditation practice by, um, by some skilled meditators. Um, but even if someone does have that knowledge of past lives and can um, recognize patterns and things being passed on from one life to another, it's still someone else's experience. Not, it's not your own experience. Um, so it's, it's something of interest, um, but it's not, you could say, a proof. 
Um, ne nevertheless, in this particular um, topic, um, <clears throat> I think it is um, worth recognizing that the uh, the evidence supporting past lives um, and rebirth is uh, is weighty and it um, there's far more evidence supporting theory of rebirth than many scientific theories which are generally accepted in the scientific community these days and um, it is a point that can be put to someone who's very um, cynical or, re or rejects the um, teaching of rebirth. So I'm, I'm, I'm coupling rebirth and kamma here because there's, you know, it's a big overlap. And, and that is the, uh, the spontaneous recollection of past lives by children. Usually these children tend to be three to five years old. And there have been many case studies, the most thorough um, series of case studies performed by Professor uh, Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia, which have been printed in a number of books that you can find on the, from Amazon, I'm sure. Um, and the, um, the ability of children to be able to recall in great detail um, uh, events that happened in a past life to be able to go to somewhere in this life which they, um, they've never been and never had any contact with and be able to recognize um, buildings and rooms and objects. The, these uh, uh, are very impressive, I think. And the question for someone who doesn't believe in rebirth is, all right, that's okay, but what alternative hypothesis have you got to explain these facts? Because people who take a stand, oh, I'm very scientific, I, you know, I can't accept rebirth because I'm a scientist. Or I'm, okay, well, if you're a scientist, um, you can't just reject facts that don't agree with your, your position. So when you have these objectively verified facts on the ground of, of, in this case, children, and not only in Buddhist cultures, non-Buddhist cultures as well, um, showing convincing ability um, to recollect past lives, then you have to be able to say, well, if you don't accept Buddhist explanation, what is your explanation? Rather than just saying, I don't want to have anything to do with it, it's not scientific, which is a very irrational and unscientific attitude. So these facts are out there, and there is the recollection of uh, the most, um, say, scientifically um, uh, researched evidence is with small children, but there is also um, the evidence of monks and lay meditators who have um, recollected past lives through power of meditation, and then also um, those who've been uh, hypnotized and under hypnoti yeah, hypnosis have been able to recollect past lives.
So, as I say, the, the, the overall, the topic of karma and rebirth, um, you know, are, are very closely intertwined. And um, pointing out to the, those facts, um, supporting the theory of uh, rebirth is one way into talking about karma. The um, a, a very important point to make is that um, Buddhism doesn't, Buddhist teaching doesn't um, consider our life is fated or that we are doomed to uh, follow out the script written by our behavior in past lives. Um, the, um, we all bring into this world certain inheritance, certain tendencies, um, <clears throat> certain gifts and weaknesses and so on, which we understand are derived from past life experience. Um, but we are not a prisoner of those. Our life is not determined by them. They, um, the, we can call this old kamma, but the question really is, um, what new kamma do you create? That is how you, how you deal with that. If you're, and we can see people living in very um, unpleasant um, surroundings with a lot going against them through um, effort, through integrity, um, patient endurance and so on, are able to transcend that environment. Others just uh, become completely uh, dragged down by it. So the number of people who are going to be dragged down by those very unfavorable um, conditions are always going to be far more than those who are not. But that the potential is there. It's not, it's not fate. And this can also be related to um, the whole um, discussion of, of genetics and genetic inheritance um, because um, not so long ago, I mean, 10, 20 years ago, you know, the, uh, when the human genome was first being decoded, then there was a sense that, that the academic community was moving towards a kind of genetic fatalism um, that we are determined by our genes. Oh, you're this or that because you've got that gene or this gene. <clears throat> um, and then it was discovered that um, genes um, have to simplify. For those scientists out amongst you, you have to forgive me here. To simplify, very um, it's it's as if genes have like an on and off switch. Um, and you can have a gene which gives you a disposition to a certain behavior or to certain illness even, um, but only if that gene is switched on. Um, one of the uh, in interesting experiments um, that was done with uh, rhesus monkeys was um, to take there there in rhesus monkeys there are a group of monkeys that have a um, a genetic uh, flaw, <clears throat> and the monkeys that have this uh, genetic flaw deviation uh, tend to be very aggressive in their behavior. 
so they um, <clears throat> they divided these uh, baby rhesus monkeys with this particular genetic flaw into two groups. And the first group were um, provided with um, or had contact with a loving mother, very supportive, loving conditions. And the other, uh, the other group were deprived of that. And they found that the, uh, the monks, excuse me, not the monks, the monkeys, um, <laughs> the monkeys who had the, um, uh, the, the care and the love from when they were first born, even though they had that gene- uh, genetic disposition to violence, didn't manifest it in their life. Whereas those that um, were in a, um, a harsh and unloving atmosphere developed this. So the gene was uh, for violence and aggression was switched on by a lack of love and care from a parent. And it was, as it were, switched off through that love and care in the first few months of its life by its mother. So this is a, a good example of the way in which a gene uh, it does not necessarily lead to a kind of behavior. It's, it's a disposition towards it. But environment, and particularly uh, in early years of life, love of parents is um, something that can prevent this. So this is, uh, you know, parallel to or, or this, you know, the same thing as as this idea of we have like gum gao or we have uh, old kamma, but this is like dispos- predispositions or possibilities or probabilities. But whether or not those probabilities play out in your life is is due to the new kamma you create, what you do with this life. So. Um, there, there's always been a lot of um, misunderstanding of law of karma. So when we say people don't believe in the law of karma or they don't, you know, they reject it, often they're rejecting their own ideas of what the law of karma is rather than what the Buddha taught. And um, for instance, you have uh, criticism, or if you believe in the law of karma, you just become really passive. You know, you say, oh, everything is, is karma. Um, everything go, anything goes. But that's not how it works at all, is it? Um, I often point out that you know, the the um, region of Thailand, in which you know there's the strongest um, devotion to, to Buddhism, where people have the strong, you could say overall, the strongest faith in in the law of Kama is the northeast, the Isan. Now, if uh, if people with very strong faith in law of karma considered that my life as it is now is how it's meant to be and always will be, you would surely expect that people from the northeast of Thailand would never leave the northeast of Thailand. They just stick it out in their poor villages and make do because that's their karma. In fact, I think there's hardly a country in the world where you can't find people from the northeast of Thailand. Um, Bangkok's full of them, the Middle East is full of them, uh, Europe, uh, everywhere you go. Um, and people who believe in the law of karma don't necessarily become passive. I mean, this is um, just so obvious from, from everyday experience. Perhaps to, to illustrate this point, 
Um, let's suppose that you're driving along one day and you see a car has crashed into a tree and you get out of your car and you walk towards the, the, car, uh, the crashed car and you see the body of someone lying by the side of the road, seriously injured. Now, as you get close to the body, you get the smell of alcohol and you come to the conclusion this person has crashed his car into a tree because he was drunk. Now, is there anybody who has um, deduced, drawn that conclusion who would then say, uh, serves them right, let them die? Um, you, know, uh, you know you're not supposed to um, get drunk and drive. I don't think anybody would do that, would you? You know, you'd still get on your mobile phone and call the ambulance or call, or call for help. So recognizing that someone is suffering because of some foolish act they've committed in the past, in this case, they're suffering from severe injuries through having crashed their car because they got drunk, doesn't mean you don't help them. And, and the fact that you might see someone who's disabled or born into a very poor family or something, you say, well, that's uh, maybe because uh, something that happened in the past life. It doesn't mean, therefore, um, that it serves them right. Um, th this is you know, the idea that many people have um, in the West. I, I don't know if you, you know, amongst uh, the young men here, particularly um, who like uh, watching football, there was a... Um, one of the great British footballers of the past 30, 40 years, called Glenn Hoddle, was a manager of the England football team. But he's also uh, involved in a lot of charities. And um, he, he was interviewed while he was the, the British football manager about the charitable work he was doing with uh, Romanian orphans. So this is just after the Iron Curtains opened and they found all these orphans in Romania in terrible conditions. And he said, why, why do you think um, that these children should have so, suffer so much from when they're first born? Um, and he said that uh, he believed that it was um, from past lives. And because of that, he was sacked from his, his position as the English football manager because he was accused of saying it served those children right. It was their fault that they were suffering. And that was just such a horrific idea that he, he, he shouldn't uh, have any kind of position of authority or represent England. <clears throat> so this is a kind of wrong ideas about, about kamma. Um, so old kamma is your, the raw material but what you do with it is a newcomer, and that's where you take responsibility. So newcomer, uh, compassion, kindness, trying to relieve suffering wherever it's possible to do so, um, that's good kamma and which you have the power to, um, to perform and, uh, and should try to perform, of course, in, in your daily life. Now, getting to the actual point of kamma, Buddha said the, the essence of kamma, the point of kamma is intention. Okay. So what is kamma? Kamma is intention. And the Buddha is saying that intention is meaningful. We create our lives through our intentional act. 
acts. So in, in English, generally, we talk about action. We usually talk about what you do. And occasionally we can speak, talk of speech as action. But thinking, deliberately thinking about something or fantasizing about something or dwelling on something, that's also kamma, that's also action. Because it's volitional, there's, there's intention there. So if, if you, so let's say you suddenly have this thought of someone you don't like, you know, and just a sense of, oh, I don't like that person. Um, then that, that's, there's not really any comma there. It's, it's memory. Maybe you just hear his voice or you see her. Um, and then just at that point of impact of seeing or hearing, this thought just pops up in your mind. Oh, I hate that guy. You know, he's so, um, obnoxious or something like that. Now that's just the result of all the comma because you, you have various experiences. Um, and you have all these memories in your mind about this person, and some prejudices, and the prejudice just pops up. So that's like old kamma. Okay? But then if you grasp onto that and make a story about it, and you know, yeah, he's so this way, oh dear, and you, and you just add to it some more, um, then you're creating new kamma. You're adding on to something that's already there. So you've got the old comer, it's the thing that just kind of pops up by itself. And then you've got the new comer, it's what you do with it. So if you're unskillful and you, lack, you, you haven't trained your mind, then generally the mind, before you know what's happened, you've just sort of gone with a flow of dislike about that person and come up with other things you don't like and your mind has got even more negative. Now if you've trained your mind, then the newcomer you create is mindfulness and you're aware of a negative thought arising in the mind just as that and you just let it go. So this is the way where the newcomer gradually wears away um, and dissolves the oldcomer. You know, if, you, if every time this sort of really negative prejudice arises in your mind, just recognize it as just a negative thought and you don't identify with it, then its power weakens and it gradually fades away. So volitional action, every volitional action has a result. This is what the law of karma is saying. So as I mentioned just now, the um, looking at the law of karma in terms of you know, on the macro scale over lifetimes, that, that's something you can learn about and use logic and intelligence to, to think about. Um, but what we can recognize in daily life is um, how volitional actions affect us. So, um, for instance, if you, um, if you act in ways that you know are unkind or um, unfair, dishonest, then um, every time you do that, or every time you lose your temper, for instance, every time you, you act in a greedy fashion, then you're, you're, it's like you're deepening a groove in your mind, a habit. You're, you're, you're strengthening the habit. And this is what the law of karma, which you can see and recognize in your daily life, how every time you act upon an impulse, you strengthen it. So every time you, you lose your temper with somebody, 
you make it more likely that you'll lose your temper next time someone does something like that. Uh, and the more difficult you make it not to lose your temper. So th- this, is, this is how we, 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 we uh, create our life and the quality of our life by the volitions that we act upon. If you're always looking in, uh, in a negative way, always looking to find fault with, with other people, then over a course of time, you just, it just becomes natural to you to be cynical and always to look on the negative side and be really miserable. It's not, you know, it's not um, uh, something that you're born with. It's something that you've just developed a habit to do because you've lacked that insight and awareness of what's going on in your mind. So um, talking about law of karma with someone you know who doesn't want to talk about rebirth and doesn't want, it's um, it's encouraging someone to look at how our volitions and the volitions we act upon affect our life. Um, what happens when you when you act? How do you feel afterwards? What are the effects? That that's the law of karma. So it's the law of cause and effect uh, on the moral, spiritual, emotional level that we can uh, really observe. Um, So there's so many different examples of this. If you you lie, you know, if you get into the habit of lying, you know, why why do people lie? Well, lie because they want something or afraid they're going to lose something um, or because to, to, uh, or, afraid of losing people's respect or wanting someone to like you, um, trying to portray yourself in a better light than um, should be, and so on. But what happens if you get into a habit of lying, it takes over after a while. It just becomes the easy way out. And and in every situation, you, you say whatever just gets you through in the best possible way. Um, and you 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 become uh, that kind of person, and if you lie um, as a regular practice until you you even don't realize you're lying anymore, you start to believe your own stories. Then then you see it's really dangerous, and you've probably met people like this who lie so often they begin to believe their lies. And they get really upset and like noijai, you know, if somebody confronts them and say, that's not true. And how could you look at, how could you think that about me? You know? So this is where lying becomes sort of just part of who you are and it becomes really dangerous. But the, the karmic effect of lying also is that people don't believe you anymore. Um, and people don't trust you anymore. And because you lie all the time, or if if you do lie all the time, then you 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 don't believe other people because you assume that they're probably the same as you, and they're lying as well. That's just a few examples. So I I don't want to spend the whole time on that question, but it's a big topic, and we can talk some more about it maybe afterwards. Um, Let me see. Okay, this is a um, a more kind of abstruse or technical question here. 
Um, uh, does uh, do or does lucid dreaming have something to do with meditation and being mindful? So um, it's this is not a phrase that many of you will have heard before. It's a phrase come across in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, lucid dreaming. Um, and that means a practice of trying to be mindful um, while you're asleep, while you're dreaming. And um, there are various um, techniques um, in the Tibetan tradition. Um, I, I practiced this at one point, but not uh, using a Tibetan technique. Um, but anyway's interest, the practice is you, you make an intention before you go to sleep um, that if you, you realize you're dreaming while you're asleep, you look at your hand like that. And the idea is to become completely conscious in the dream. Um, it's, it's not something that um, is, uh, is recommended or is part of the Theravada tradition. Um, so the question is, does it have something to do with meditation? Yes, it is a practice uh, in Tibetan tradition, uh, developing mindfulness while asleep, uh, while dreaming. Um, but the uh, Theravada practices more on just sleep um, as little as you need. And the moment you, wake, the moment you, you become conscious, wake up and uh, do something useful like meditating. Recently, someone discovered energy in which they call dark matter, dark matters, but it seems like complete darkness that there are measurable energy. Is is it the other realms, heavens, hell? Uh, I really uh, don't know. I'm not at all versed in astrophysics. and um, you know whether whether these other realms are uh, have a, a physical basis which could be in these dark matter. I, I did read that the that the something like the universe, which you know we can see and, and, and measure, is um, only like about one percent of dark matter. So you know it's just more far more dark matter than anything else. But uh, exactly what it is, um, I, I'm, I'm not really qualified. Um, uh, so if a person was born in an extremely wealthy family, but the entire family does not believe in Buddhism, so that person has no idea about the law of karma, does all the bad things, is that person considered lucky or unlucky then? Uh, lucky meaning born rich, good life, unlucky, no knowledge about Buddhism, leading to bad, something which I can't read. Um, yet the, you know, whether or not, um, you know, a, a wealthy, um, comfortable background is um, lucky or unlucky, it's not really um, Buddhist uh, concepts, but the um, the idea of you know what's given or what we have around us um, is expressed in the word you know the Pali word the word for money, which is pachai, 
you know, or pachaya, meaning it's a supporting condition. So um, if you're born into a wealthy family, it's definitely um, uh, a sub- good supporting condition, uh, right from the fact that, you know, so much of healthy um, brain development um, is contingent on good nutrition. And millions and millions and millions of people in the world, uh, hundreds of millions of people, don't, uh, are not able to uh, provide um, good enough nutrition for their children's brains to, to grow properly. I used to see this if you go to India, for instance. Um, so, you know, everything's set up and you, you're wealthy and you're going to get a, a good education. Um, you're not going to, unlikely to die in childbirth. Your mother's unlikely to die in childbirth. Um, when you get ill, you're going to get good doctors, good medical care. So you've got a lot going for you. So yeah, it's a good thing. Um, but um, it's not um, always and inevitably um, a good thing because, um, as you know, wealthy families have their problems also. Um, and there's a lot of suffering uh, for people through human relationships, relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and children. Um, and uh, also, the uh, if wealthy uh, people living in a wealthy family um, are um, coddled and spoiled, uh, become very uh, self-obsessed, narcissistic, uh, immature. And one of the most important things that we need to learn as we grow up is, um, is the law of comer in the sense of the law of consequences. So that means that we need to learn that actions have consequences and be um, and see the necessity of taking responsibility for our actions. Now, uh, often in a wealthy country, and particularly a country like Thailand, um, then parents will try to protect their children um, from any kind of suffering. So when the children um, act in um, immoral or um, uh, unskillful ways, then they try to protect them from the consequences, come what may. And it's quite natural, you understand why a parent would do that. Um, but in the long run, you know, it, cannot, it can be not such a good thing um, if you think you can get away with um, whatever because there's always, you've always got a backup or someone to make sure um, that you've got a safety net. So in that sense, um, being born in a less wealthy family um, where parents don't have that kind of power or influence um, may in the long run be a better thing and that um, can develop a sense of responsibility, maturity, um, empathy, um, care in, in one's actions because um, um, aware of um, cause and effect. So 
I don't think that, you know, although uh, someone who's not Buddhist, um, necessarily believing in law of karma, but there are members, people who, obviously who um, believe in other religions that have good moral codes. And um, I, I think, I find that the teachings of, uh, to be frank, the teachings of Mormon church is totally bizarre and um, you know, without... Uh, almost ridiculous in a sense, but at the same time, um, the standard of morality um, amongst uh, Mormons is, is very high. So it's um, something that, um, you know, they have a um, really good, strong moral code in their particular tradition. And so, um, you know, in a way, that's it's like um, believing in law of Kummer, although they would ex- understand it in a different way. But um, you know, overall, say being born, uh, Buddha said, being born is uh, the luckiest thing. Um, being born as a human being is a very lucky thing, very difficult thing. And um, being born in a in a Buddhist family in a Buddhist environment um, is extremely lucky. So um, you know, if you if you have a comfortable background and, and the surroundings um, and um, exposure to Buddhism, then that's about, you know, Buddhist says that's about as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, from my understanding, you explained to us in the first meditation session that we should pick a spot in our body to remind us of our uh, breath the only place where I literally feel feel the air traveling in and out of my body is at the tip of my nose. However, one place where I feel it's most significant and easy to recognize is the compressing and expanding of my diaphragm. Which uh, place should I choose? Is it important that I have to feel the actual air moving? Um, no, the the important point here is you you have this sense of ease and interest. Um, and um, if you if you feel you're really pulled to to observe the the breath and the abdomen, the the express, uh, expansion and contraction, that's fine. Um, so, uh, and in the Burmese uh, Buddhist tradition, then then the meditation on the breath, and the abdomen is the most commonly used technique. Um, so. It's really finding a point where, yeah, I can do this here, feel comfortable, I feel interested, I can feel committed and willing to to put my effort in at this point. Um, What you don't want to do is be shifting from one point to another. Whatever point that you use, whether it's in the tip of the nose or the abdomen or in the chest area or wherever, you're going to run into some difficulties sooner or later. Um, uh, and be and be willing to that, and don't think, oh, I must be doing it wrong because now I have some problems and and um, defilements and so on arising. So the, the the technique is not a way of avoiding or bypassing problems. It's giving you a basis to 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 push through or to understand and to um, overcome problems.
Okay, another, another rebirth question. With regards to rebirth, is it, it is believed in Buddhism that people will be rebirthed until all the past karma is completely repaid. How does Buddhism explain the first group of life forms that were born before the very first course of action creates karma consequences? Um, it's not uh, the the idea that uh, we'll be re- rebirthed until the past comer is comp- that's a that's a Hindu idea rather than a Buddhist idea. Um, so and in the sort of new age in the West, in all these sort of new uh, Eastern influenced spiritual traditions, this idea you know you're on this sort of slowly gradually going up, working through your comer until eventually you reach this point of bliss and. Uh, <laughs> whatever. Um, so, so that's not at all um, what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught that this just goes on and on and on and on. You know, as long as you put fuel on the fire, the fire won't go out. There's nothing inevitable about it. Nothing that just naturally occurs over the course of lifetimes. Um, the Buddha uh, also pointed out that we have very limited and and um, of uh, childish ideas of time. You know, what is the nature of time? And this is a huge subject in itself. Now, in in the West, the concept of time in the West is an arrow. You know, it goes from point A to point B, from the past to the future. You know, it's a, time is an arrow. Um, so, if you if you conceive your idea of time is a straight line then this question of, you know, where does that straight line begin is kind of a meaningful question. But that's just one way of thinking about time, and it's not, you know, it's not part of um, time, not part of nature. It's something that we add on to it. It's a concept human created in the human brain. So the Buddha said that there is um, no conceivable beginning um, to this, and the Buddha, um, the Buddha could remember um, the past for unimaginable time. So, like for eons and eons, you know, not just for like a few, uh, few hundred years. Um, and so the Buddha said, you know, a, a galpa or a gap, and he explained it. So imagine, um, say, a mountain, which is um, a yojana. Let's say about. I don't know, 15, 20 kilometers long, 15, 20 kilometers wide, and 15, 20 kilometers high. And he said, once every hundred years, a bird flies by with a feather in its mouth, and it just um, brushes against this metal mountain. So how long would it take for that once every hundred year feather to wear away a mountain, which is that huge and he said, that's one kalpa, nungap. And, and, and so the, and the Buddha ha, had a memory of many kalpas, not just one. And he said, you know, he, he, hadn't, he hasn't been able to find a beginning to all of this. So in, in modern um, scientific theory, we have the Big Bang theory is the, is the, um, is the theory most commonly uh, accepted right now, so um, which 
um, will correspond to Buddhist idea of like worlds of expansion and worlds of contraction. So like a big bang and then a contra- expansion, contraction, another big bang going on and on and on and not having a beginning. So, you know, I, I don't know if this is an, an analogy, but if you have a, like a ball or a sphere and you say, where's the beginning of that? You know, on, on the surface of a sphere, where's the beginning? Well, there's, there's no point there's a beginning on that. So the idea that there should be a first cause or a beginning or a creator is um, just a, an idea, it's a concept. Okay, there may be one more for now. Um, how should one deal with the feeling of being deserted like a broken heart? Uh, what is a Buddhist prescription? <laughs> Well, um, you know, any any strong strong feeling um, of grief, of sorrow, um, through separation, um, it could be through um, death, or through abandonment, or betrayal, or or whatever. Um, it's it's a feeling. Okay, <clears throat> and when we have very strong, unpleasant feelings, the the natural we have two natural tendencies. One is just to completely sort of drown in it, indulge in it, um, and just let it completely envelop you. And the other one is to try to run away from it, or repress it, turn your back on it, and both of those strategies uh, tend to make it worse. So the Buddhist um, prescription, if you like, um, is that recognition of a feeling as a feeling. This is a feeling, it's like this. Um, So the recognition, this this is sorrow, this is grief. This is anger. This is whatever. It's like this. It's this way right now. Um, so that sense of acceptance of it um, as a feeling, and then start to look at it a little bit more closely. Um, for instance, is it constant, like twenty-four-seven? You know, is it always there? Um, well, no, it isn't. Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak, sometimes it can not be there for at the beginning for a few minutes or a few hours at a time. But it's not something that's fixed and constant. It's not always there. It's not always there in the same way. And then we can begin to see in how it becomes, you know, what are the causes and conditions that makes it stronger or makes it weaker. And if we just want it to go away, we're making it worse. Um, if we um, turn our back on it, try to be really busy, or just try to forget ourselves, or or use alcohol or drugs just to uh, forget it, um, then we make it worse in the long run. But when you see that this is a feeling, and a feeling is something that arises because of everything that's gone before, but it's an inconstant feeling 
and it's something that changes and we just be with it. So if the, the simile I have is if you've never really looked at your mind and how your mind works, uh, when there's some real disaster in your life, you know, something really unpleasant happens, you can feel like you're just this little boat, you know, and, and there's a big storm, you know, and there's huge waves coming in and every big wave you think it's going to completely capsize your boat, you know, and you just, you just feel this sense of this is going to go on forever. But when you're with the feeling and just observing, watching, what are the, how does it manifest in your body? Which parts of your body does it feel? Where do you feel it? What's that feeling like? You know, just imagine that you were, you know, a, an alien from another planet and you were observing this. You know, what, what is this? What's going on? And um, then eventually, um, it's not that you don't have these kind of feelings, maybe, um, but it's more you feel like you are the ocean. Rather than you're the little boat on the stormy ocean, like you're the stormy ocean, and that particular emotion is like a little boat. So you've got all this sort of surface um, uh, commotion and wind and, and so on, but underneath that, you know, there's this sense of calm. So it, it's, a, it's a change of perspective. Um, and you realize, yeah, you know, it, it's... it's you know, it's not pleasant, it's horrible, but um, it's, it's just this, it's just this. It's the, and the awareness of an emotion is not the emotion. So you know, you, you know you're feeling terrible, but that knowing is not, is not terrible. The knowing is the same as the knowing of today's a nice day or this food tastes good or tastes bad. That's neutral knowing. So there's two things, you know, there's, there's the emotion and there's the knowing of it. And already you can see, well, that that feeling is not everything because the knowing of it um, is completely unaffected by it. So you know what what what's you you know when you're really suffering um and you feel abandoned deserted you like life's like a desert you know and you feel yeah, it's um the end of the world then when somebody says you'll get over it it'll you know there's plenty of more fish in the sea and so on and so forth that's terrible when somebody tells you that it's not helpful at all is it you know because you know all that already um, but it's, it's more the emotional uh, maturity just to bear with it, just to be patient. Um, and uh, just as if you've got a broken leg, you know, this might be really inconvenient. You've got things to do and places to go, and this is the last time you want a broken leg. But I say you just you have to, you have to wait till your leg um, heals. And if you've got a broken heart, it's the same. You know, it's not going to change overnight, um, it's got to heal. And the thing to do is to, just as you've got a broken leg, you have to put a cast on it or you have whatever you do these days. And um, with broken hearts, the same, you have to look after it. Um, treat your heart well. Don't, um, 
don't indulge in the feeling of self-pity and, oh, this always happens to me, or it's my karma, or, um, or anger at the person who's hurt you, because that just, just goes on and on. Um, but uh, say, so, yeah, it's like this. This is, um, this is what life's like. You know, this is, uh, this is what happens. Uh, human emotion is like this, you know. So whenever you, you embark on a relationship, it's a gamble. You know, it's always a gamble. You don't have any, um, you can never be absolutely sure um, in another person, their trustworthiness, their, no matter how much they, they, they say. Um, you only find out if someone's trustworthy over a period of years. Um, so, you know, always recognizing anything is, it's my nair, it's not sure. Okay, I think that's um, just gone over our time for the morning and we've got another few sessions of questions and answers. Um, So the remaining ones I'll answer tomorrow.